0: Talking With, the FLBA podcast. Hello and welcome to the second in our series of FLBA podcasts, Talking With. My name is Leslie Samuels and this week I'm talking with my co-host, Bibi Badajo. It's great to be here as a guest. <laughs> Bibi was called to the bar in 2005 and is a children's specialist at Fourbrick Court Chambers. Before joining the bar, she volunteered as a Mackenzie friend for a domestic violence charity and as a duty advisor for a housing charity. In 2012, Bibby was nominated and shortlisted for Young Legal Aid Barrister of the Year at the Legal Aid Lawyers Awards for her work with Greenwich Housing Rights. Uh, Bibby's well known and recommended for her sensitive approach to difficult cases, representing vulnerable clients in incredibly difficult circumstances. Bibby is also founder and host of the Advocacy podcast, which we'll be talking about later. Tell us about your career path to the family bar.
1: I'm afraid to say I kind of fell into it because after bar school, I thought I was going to go into housing. I ended up working for a company called LBC as an advocate, which was great in terms of getting experience before judges while I was making my applications for pupillage. And one of the things that struck me was I felt that I made people cry every single day. Uh, I was doing, as I said, mortgage possessions and they was so upset so I was looking at different types of voluntary work that I could do to support people and I did some in terms of housing but I also looked at working with the National Centre for Domestic Violence as a Mackenzie friend and once I started doing that it really was a great fit for me. I enjoyed the human element of family law. Ended up getting a family pupilage, and it just stuck. I really enjoy it. I, I love what I do. That's great to hear. Um, you've clearly got a passion for voluntary work
0: and working with vulnerable, vulnerable people. What is it that drives you in that direction?
1: I just think it's essential that people have a voice. The reason why I do this job is because I think that people should have have an opportunity to be represented. And you don't get that, particularly if you're vulnerable or you're from a certain aspect of society. So it's really that passion that drives me to fight and work with vulnerable people. Despite
0: much effort, black and minority ethnic groups remain underrepresented at the bar. Uh, What more can we do to make the bar truly representative of the community
1: it serves? In all honesty, I don't think that much effort has been put in in the recent past. It's only, i say, in the last year or two where huge efforts have started being made. I think it's important for the wider community within the bar to actually listen to what the experiences of their Black colleagues are, as well as other ethnic minorities, and listen with an open mind, not to defend or or to discredit And and sometimes that happens without even meaning to. And I think an example of this was with Alexandra Wilson. I think everyone knows now she's the criminal barrister who went to court and she was mistaken as being the defendant on three occasions. And there was such shock when she tweeted her tweets and people said, I can't believe it. And I thought, really, why? It happens to me. It happens to me. If anyone listened... (laughs) When it does happen to me, and I'm not just saying it as myself like it's a personal story, but it's something that's happened to many of my Black counterparts for years, years and years and years. So it wasn't surprising to us, but it was surprising to people who hadn't really had an an opportunity to find out what was going on and the fact that our experiences might be different. Also, I think having an understanding that the Black Asian and other ethnic minorities, they're not a monolith as a BAME category or even within their individual groups, all really very different. And, and yes, I think just, just acknowledging that, going on to do some training, opening up opportunities to the wider circle so it's not just the same faces that are, are coming through, that would make, make a difference and really really actually engaging in what's, what's out there, not just plain lip service. It, it's shocking that it should have happened to you and to others.
0: Uh, if that's the perception, we're not going to encourage people into the profession. What more do we need to do to listen and hear what's being said and to change things?
1: I think there's, there are different things that we can do on a personal one-to-one level. So, for example, if – and I'm using myself as an example here. It's, it's just easier. But if I were to say to you, this is my experience – for that not to be shut down, like, oh, well, it's happened to me because someone mistook me for being, I don't know, the solicitor or, or something else, but really not undermining the experiences that are being told about. I also think that some reporting, and um, I know the Bar Council and HMCTS were really quite proactive following Alexandra's tweet, and there was going to be training and for me, I thought well, that's all well and good, but council had done that to me. So it's it's listening to our colleagues and and having a listen to that, and I think structurally as well, highlighting these issues that go ahead. And I'm, I've obviously only drawing on this small example, but highlighting it and also bringing an awareness to it so that people can understand that there are different experiences that others undertake and also having some training around that.
0: So Bibi, it's clearly important that all of us call out such instances when they happen. What can we do for those coming into the profession to make sure that they do not have the same experiences?
1: Sometimes it can be as simple as acknowledging that this happens. And when people are aware of prejudices and forms of discrimination, they're less likely to do it. I also think that it's important to have visibility. I know that some chambers are now actively working in terms of diversity. I've done a, a research project of my own, which was looking at the disparity between students who were applying for pupilage, um, black, it was mainly black students applying for peopleage, and those that actually got them and the disparity. And I was asking them what they thought they wanted and needed and for them, it was about visibility. So I think recruitment probably needs to change throughout the board at all levels for pupils as well as for senior leadership roles. Because I know what tends to be off-putting for a lot of students is them thinking that they have to break the glass ceiling themselves, not realising that there are other people who have gone there before them. And in some cases, they they might have to be. They might be the only ethnic minority in that regard, but having an open workspace where they know that Even though they might not look like everybody else, they're going to be welcomed and supported and be treated as an equal. So those are the sorts of things that I think would make a difference.
0: Now, Bibi, it's no secret, I think, to reveal that you're pregnant with your first child. Indeed, by the time this podcast goes live, I think you may well have given birth. Uh, Are you going to have some time away from practice?
1: Yes, I am. Obviously really excited, and I'd made the decision quite a while ago anyway that I would be taking a year off and having that time to to settle. And it's, yeah, it's really really exciting. It's scary. Uh, <laughs> there's some elements of, of pregnancy where i thought, oh, my goodness, I'd rather prep an NAI than do all this. Any further. That's it's really so- saying something. <laughs> 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 it's so alien to me, but I'm just really looking forward to... Uh, embarking on that new part of my life as a mother. It must be
0: exciting at the same time daunting, but are you able even just to think about what it'd be like trying to return to work as a new mother and with caring responsibilities?
1: Well, yes, and the reason for that is because having a support system within my personal life as well as my professional life is incredibly important to me. So my partner's great. I have family that live close by who can... Help me out and also contribute. And also professionally, I feel at Fulbright Court, they're just there to support me wholly. The clerks and I have already looked at the plan for when I'm coming back. Um, I have a mentor who has given me great advice about when I do come back, the sort of combinations of hours that I might be working. So I've, I've actually put quite a great deal of thought and have an idea of what I want my career to, A, my career to look like after I come back, but also my day-to-day practice. Like, do I want to work two days a week? Or do I think maybe one week in three or something might be more workable? I've, I've been able to think about that a lot more. So I'm not so daunted by it, mainly because I've had a few months to really think and turn it around in my mind.
0: You've highlighted an important aspect, which is the support of your clerking team and then the support of a mentor within chambers. Do you think sets of chambers are better set up now than they used to be to support working mothers?
1: I think so, definitely. Well, I'd hope they are. I I think they've got the abilities to be, so there there shouldn't be any reason why not. For me, I have had quarterly meetings with my clerks, their professional development meetings, so that we can look at where I'm going in the next few months and tweak it accordingly in relation to my plans. So that's why I think I have a really good relationship with my clerks, but with other chambers, I don't see why that can't be done, especially with people who, I say people because who knows who's going to be going off a paternal leave. It might not just be mothers though. I know the retention of women is a a problem. There's no reason why that they can't be supported in terms of having a mentor. Someone has done it before and they've done it successfully. I think it's important for chambers to also enable their members to dip their foot in every now and again. And I don't mean that I'll come and do a case every so often but still be invited to chambers events still be included in chambers activities or if they're seminars I think it might be easier to give a seminar with appropriate notice and still have your name out there as opposed to having to prep maybe a final hearing or something so there are different ways that people can still continue being engaged in chambers so I think that they're fairly easy steps that chambers can can take it's not that much effort to do so and also the clerks having a plan of what's going to happen when, um, when members come back from whatsoever leave that they have taken.
0: Important perhaps to recognise that out of sight should not mean necessarily out of mind. Uh, you also highlight um, there the, the visibility point, which I think probably ties in with the diversity issue, that having role models within chambers who've been through the journey that you're going through is incredibly important. We need to make sure that Chambers supports working mothers and becomes actually a a magnet for for working parents who feel that they're able to get the right work-life balance at a particular set of Chambers.
1: Absolutely. And I know it doesn't always seem like it, but one of the great things about this career and and, and position that we're in is the flexibility. I think that to, to an extent we have bought into the story that it's about case after case after case after case. I've never approached it in that way. I thought that <laughs> my dream, my dream would be to work about um nine months of the year <laughs> and then do whatever I wanted in in that other spare time. But there's there's a lots of lots of flexibility and people should be penalized for that. Working parents bring so much in terms of the experience. It really is an asset. So retaining them or attracting them to chambers is definitely an asset in my view. Bibi.
0: I particularly wanted to interview you because you're such an active member of the FLBA Executive Committee. Uh, What value do you think that committee brings to the family bar?
1: Okay, so before I joined the um, committee, the value I thought was these wonderful sessions on Thursday evenings where you were pumped full of information back updating case law. I didn't have to do it and it was just done so well. Absolutely loved it. But since joining the executive committee, I realised how much of a contribution the FLBA makes, and it really showed during the pandemic. I didn't worry as much as I thought I would because I felt that I was being looked after by the FLBA, and I'm saying this just as as a member, but seeing the internal workings of how hard our chair, our vice chair, and all the committees were working to ensure that members were being Um, looked after, I know the FLBA were in key discussions with decision makers at the Ministry of Justice and also HMCTS and and the Bar Council, and it went down to little things such as even our fast forms, that was sorted out, and advocates meetings and sorting out the order was included automatically, We didn't have to worry about that, even though we were spending so much time front-loading these cases because everything had changed. And then the huge things such as being included as key workers, CVP training, and supporting people to move from paper to being paperless by having these excellent, well-thought-out training sessions of course we, we were on the well-being committee providing a form of support for people's well-being as well so i i just thought it was an incredible contribution that was being made and i hadn't realized how much work the flba executive committee actually did in order to make sure that all of its members were taken care of so yeah that's <laughs> that's what i think it brings to the family bar it's been phenomenal. There was a sense, uh, as as we
0: lived through it, I don't know whether you agree, that not only was the committee dealing uh, day to day with the changing situation in the outside world and trying to manage individual concerns about that in terms of well-being, safety at court, but then went into this form of overdrive in terms of then training uh, for paperless working, remote hearings... And as you say, the negotiation that was initiated with the LAA, it almost seemed like, as a cohesive whole, the various parts all started pulling in the the same direction to achieve something which I think is the envy of lots of other SBAs.
1: Absolutely. Leadership was phenomenal, really great judgment. For seeing potential problems and dealing with them before they actually became problems, It, it was incredible. It really was.
0: And of course, that work carries on on a daily or sometimes weekly basis with committee meetings, subcommittee meetings, and, and, and initiatives. Uh, so there's a lot going on, and we'll miss you. We'll miss you, Bibi. Uh, and in particular, of course, you're a founder member of our well-being subcommittee, uh, chaired by the wonderful Vicki Wilson. Yes. Why has it taken us so long to recognise the importance of
1: well-being at the bar? I'm sure there are many reasons, but two that come up for me are the fact that there is a culture of having a badge of honour for working so hard and working through problems. I don't know very many people who have not worked into the long hours of the night and had a couple of hours sleep and then gone to court and been functioning on literally no sleep for a week or very little sleep for a week i also think that the softer areas of work are overlooked and i I just don't think that a lot of people were sharing really about the challenges that they were encountering and he wants to go first he wants to say do you know what i i can't manage this i'm finding it really really difficult and i just want to take a break no no one was really saying that and it's taken key people, I would say, especially like Cyrus, for example, who, who's the chair, showing his vulnerability and encouraging people to not not necessarily share their vulnerabilities and their worries, just in case they don't want to, it's, it's never been like that, but he's created a space where people can actually just exhale and say, someone else felt that way. I felt that way and I completely identify with it. Uh, and We now seem to approach things in a sense of putting our own masks on first and making sure that we we are bolstered in terms of our well-being so that we can do our jobs better and the stresses aren't overwhelming us in the same way so um, yeah we've had a really great steer from Cyrus from Vicky obviously you Leslie it's now part of the culture to ensure that you look after yourself
0: and do you think by highlighting it, and I know Cyrus is one of Cyrus's initiatives, is that it's always right up there as as one of the first items on the agenda? By highlighting it, we're also sending a message to others within the system, judiciary, solicitors, that perhaps they need to think about our well being and their own well being at the same time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There was the example I think of emails. And when we, when we should be responding to emails, why should anyone respond to an email that's sent at 11 p.m.? You can have your own policies. You can create your own policies and boundaries so that you can let other people know that I'm going to be responding between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. And it's there and it's really, really clear. And so there aren't these awful expectations that we're having to work beyond hours that you know or work into anti-social hours and it does highlight that for other aspects of the legal profession for sure.
0: And maybe even beyond that I mean how often I certainly remember the sleepless nights caused not by having to do my own work but then receiving at 10, 11 o'clock at night a detailed skeleton from the other side, raising all sorts of points for the hearing the next day. And that then makes our lives very difficult. It's not just the expectation perhaps to respond, but also the receipt of what can be quite complex material that then interrupts our own sleep patterns.
1: Absolutely, and that that does happen. And I think that it's not just those complex pieces of work that come in. But sometimes even just getting a question means that you have to start, you go back into work mode and you stop relaxing and you're not able to sleep as well. So there's a huge spectrum of the type of emails that can come in that have the same devastating impact.
0: Yeah, and and I can say, Bibi, that you're clearly sensitive to that uh, 16 years call I have to say, coming up for um, 30-odd years at the bar, I still have that same anxiety when an email comes in late at night raising different issues for the next day. and It doesn't go away. It doesn't get better.
1: It doesn't go away, and this, this is what I mean. It's really important for people to hear you say things like that. You're a silk. I think you've got absolutely everything covered and nothing bothers you. You're completely unflappable this week. But for you to um, also share that within our conversation, I, I think is huge. Because I have those anxieties as well. And I can't imagine the number of people who are listening that do. So um, thanks, thanks for sharing that. It's really well, important. I'll, I'll add this, that
0: I also feel it when I sit as a part-time judge. Even in that role, which is which often is less uh, less anxious because you, you, you're not at that point in time representing often a vulnerable party in difficult proceedings, but even then, receiving a, a email late at night can influence the way I am for the rest of that evening because I'm my wife describes it as not present. I'm, I'm there but she can see in my eyes, my brain is elsewhere. And, and, and so it can make it very difficult, I think, at all levels to switch off when we don't have those boundaries. You know, whatever it is, I think 7 o'clock at night is late enough and maybe 7 o'clock in the morning is the right time to start, but at least to have some boundaries for the receipt of and, and sending of emails is, I think, helpful. Bibi, I, I cannot let this interview pass without asking you about Ian Griffin, uh, the much-loved, much-admired head of, of Brick Court, who sadly passed away in October last year. Uh, you must all miss him terribly.
1: We do, we do. He was such a force in Chambers, such a caring man. He had this gruff exterior, which was brilliantly funny, and also the biggest heart. For For us in Chambers, he... He was such a proponent of well-being and spending time with your family and was very clear that no one would be forced to work beyond what they wanted to and so on. He really did make a huge difference to our lives. He was always someone who had his door open and full of sage advice, really. So he's, he's truly missed, he, he really is.
0: I, I know how influential he, he, he was and, and is for Cyrus. And indeed, the whole well-being drive, I think, started with, with Ian. I was never against him, Bob, but I did have some conversations with him. And as you say, slightly gruff exterior, but lovely and full of, full of good advice. Real, really sad uh, that, that he's left us. Absolutely. You probably really couldn't have more going on at the moment. <laughs> Pregnant. Working, I know, until very recently, living in a global pandemic. What do you do uh, for your own well-being?
1: Well, I have a daily meditation practice, which definitely calms me down and enables me to put things into perspective. Until recently, I'm, I'm blaming my pregnant body for this, but until recently, I was also exercising daily, which is great. Running, which then became walking and doing some yoga, which became more and more still as um, time went on. But that's a really great outlet for me. I've also really focused on instilling boundaries, really. Uh, We mentioned the emails. Also with my clerks, if I need a paperwork day, I request it and I might need two or three days within a week so that I can properly prepare and not be overwhelmed. I found it quite difficult when I do quite a bit of local authority work and I'm sent five different cases in a week. And all of that prep and dealing with the hearing, drafting the order, then going straight into the, the other case, just found it really quite difficult. So I had conversations with my clerks about spacing that out. Also, what else have I done? I think making sure that I address any issues that cause me stress. So for example, upgrading my broadband because trying to log onto a video platform for court and having that crash, unnecessary stress. So I invested the money to make sure that that didn't, didn't happen for court hearings. And you know, sometimes it does, it, it can't be helped, but doing as much as I could to eradicate obvious stresses in my life have really made a difference. And I suppose being in a pandemic, I completely acknowledge it's been really difficult for a lot of people. L- lots of tragedies have been encountered during this time. I recognise that I've been very lucky. No one that I know has been seriously ill. And also being pregnant has meant that I can work from home. That would not have happened had it not been for these strange and unprecedented times. But not travelling to different courts, not having to go all the way to Reading. I live in South London. That doesn't work for me necessarily. has made a huge difference. So... In terms of being able to maintain my well-being, it's also meant that I can have more of a consistent routine, and have meditate and also exercise and just have a much calmer approach to the day.
0: You, you mentioned some positives, and, and we can all share that sense of positive of being, not having the journey, not having the commute, um, and perhaps being able to start work a little a little later in the day than we otherwise would. So what positive changes do you think we can take away from this?
1: Apart from being forced to adapt to technology, which I think would have been about a few years away, had it not been for for the pandemic. But I also think we can now trust in our resilience and adaptability. 2020, you could not have predicted that coming and the way that it would have disrupted our lives, but we've made it through. And we've we've been able to do that in quite a powerful and impactful way. So it, it's a testament to how we as a profession deal with things when, when they are difficult. So I think that's definitely a positive. And it's also provided a reset. I know that people, again, because we haven't been traveling as often, because I know some people have, um, but not traveling as often, you've been able to engage with your family more which is so important and you've been able to install routines that you wouldn't have been able to before because perhaps you were getting a seven o'clock train from Houston to go to birmingham or something so i think those are real positives and do
0: you think remote hearings are here to stay in one way or another
1: yeah, I do. I, I absolutely do. Apart from the uh, huge investment that has been made to develop a variety of platforms, there is a sense of convenience, I think, certainly for for practitioners. And I think also for, for some clients. I know that there's some difficulties there. I don't think necessarily that final or contested hearings should be done remotely unless it's appropriate and, and clients can engage. But when you have Someone who is travelling from afar for a directions hearing, which is only going to last thirty minutes, do they really need to come all the way to court? No, I don't think they do. I think there's a there's a time and place, and I think now it's probably wedded into into the way we approach court hearings now that they're going to be they're going to stay, and it may be completely remote, hybrid hearings. Of course, we'll still continue having um, in person hearings. But, yeah, I, I think they're here to stay.
0: And are you going back to paper bundles?
1: Do you know what? No, never. <laughs> uh, I had <hit> banned... <laughs> I say banned. This is all in jest. But I banned my clerks from sending me paper bundles in 2019. I carry two iPads and that's it. It wasn't working for my back. <laughs> it was, like, purely... <laughs> what is it, Vanity? I was like, I quite like my posture. This is really hurting. I can't do it. So I never... I, I had stopped working with paper bundles for, for quite while well, actually.
0: I remember the question he used to ask is whether it's a one-trolley or a two-trolley case. <laughs> yeah. No more wheelie trolleys. <laughs> now, maybe you're bringing a new life into the world at a time of much uncertainty
1: and change. Uh, what are your hopes and your fears for the future? I can't think of any fears at the moment. I, f- I feel that whatever comes my way, I'll be able to handle it. And I think that goes back to what I've learned about myself about my resilience and adaptability. I say this not having had my first child. So uh-huh. I think that's just gonna go out of the window and I'm going to be freaking out and asking for help all over the place. But I think the thing is that if I don't know, I'll ask for help and um, I'll be blubbering in a corner, but I'll be able to get that. Out. You should repeat this in about four months time and be <laughs> sleep deprived. Not sleep deprived and not, not knowing what the day is. Um, and in terms of hope, I think that just having a more inclusive buy I really see that happening, not just in terms of ethnicity in all sorts of areas, like fully inclusive. Those are, those are my hopes. That's what I think um, is really going to make a difference where we truly reflect the society that we serve.
0: Now, lastly, Bibi, I just wanted to give a plug, as I mentioned at the beginning, to your advocacy podcasts. They provide a great insight into what makes a good advocate, but how on earth did you find the time and what inspired you to do this?
1: i think i'll I'll take the questions in the opposite way. What inspired me was it was mainly a journey I began in two thousand and seventeen where I just thought that in terms of advocacy i have to get I have to get better I have to get better at this and I went to the keyboard course and it was astonishing the difference that it made to the way that I approached advocacy and also the way that I performed at court and then I had lots of opportunities I got some further scholarships to do training in Florida for both civil and criminal since no one had a family course for me to go on and then did some specialist training around cross-examination and also um, went to Australia in um, January 2020 for an advanced advocacy course. And I just thought that because it made such a big difference to me, but I also recognized that not everybody would be able to travel or drop everything and be able to go off the way that I did. I was just wondering about how I could share what I had learned with other people As many people as possible so the idea of a podcast came about and I I definitely knew that I needed to interview guests you were not going to learn anything from me I promise you that Um, (laughs) that's where where the idea of the podcast came from before it was released it had been about a year in the making I put together a team uh, we did our research we recorded most of the podcast between I think it was October and December of last year And then we've been able to put it out and it's been really well received, which is great. It's had had some great reviews and uh, having listened to several
0: myself, I'm taking notes as I'm listening. (laughs) It's great to hear. Thank you. Bibi, it has been a pleasure and a privilege talking with you. Uh, We're all so excited for you. Uh, Please do let us know when the big day comes uh, and we'll all raise a glass to you. Bibi, thank you very much.